What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your mom, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. This podcast I've had in the can for a while, since January, and it's just taken us a while to cut it, just because we've been swamped here. And of course, we couldn't have cut this without Carly McKeating. Big shout out to her. So this is my interview with Sean. Sean directed a documentary called The Fat Wreck. If you're into punk music or into music or into puppets because they use puppets to do reenactments, you're going to want to see this film. It's it's a lot of fun. You can check it out. It's on iTunes and I believe also in Netflix now. Definitely check that out. It's a fat wreck and it's all about the creation of Fat Records, which was created by Fat Mike of No Effects. It goes through the history of it. It's got some great unique ideas in editing. There's a few particular scenes that I really like that we actually end up talking about here. So sit back, enjoy this interview with Sean, and then make sure to go check out A Fat Wreck. To get started, you made this punk rock documentary or punkumentary about Fat Records. So how did you get into punk rock and what was your first punk rock show? Oh, these are good questions. Man, awesome. I got into punk rock around, I would say I was about 13 or 14, and I'm uh, 37, so that was around like 94, 95, and uh, there was a few different avenues, but I guess the biggest one was a buddy of mine had a mixtape that he gave me that had a bunch of Fat Records bands on it, like uh, Propagandy and uh, Strung Out and, you know, No Effects, all those kind of bands. And so uh, that was my first foray, and I think I, I went on a trip out to California to visit my sister, and the only thing I had was a Walkman, and it had uh, Propagandi and Good Riddance, you know, one on each side, and I just pretty much listened to that all summer, so that was a big help. And what was your first punk rock show? The Queers. That's a good one. Yeah, and so check this out. This is cool. So at the time, the guys that I was friends with were MediaTek. They were working on a, I'm putting air quotes, documentary. So I went to that first show and I had long grunge hair. They were like, you should cut your hair. <laughs> so I got my hair cut into like a mohawk on the thing. So at my first punk rock show, I got a mohawk. That's awesome. It wasn't very good. It only lasted a day because it was drunk people doing it. And we interviewed Joe Queer. Joe Queer came off the stage and then talked to everybody. And my buddies had a video camera. And I, I wasn't super involved. You know, I was kind of there. But I thought that. But I thought that was pretty amazing thing at the time. I had never, I'd only been to a couple of the concerts before. And usually there's such that separation between the performer and the audience. And I saw that barrier, and I, and I was just like, whoa, he just comes off and he talks to everybody? That's amazing. So yeah, that was my first punk rock show, The, the Queers. There's shows I've been to where I'm like, holy crap, that's ingrained in my memory. I'm never going to forget what I saw. Is there anything that sort of sticks out like that for you? Yeah, there used to be this venue up in Denton where all the big punk rock, I say big, I mean at the time, the Propagandis and a lot of Fat Records bands were coming through. And I think Propagandi played, and they had to stop halfway through because there's no ventilation. The place was super packed, and it was so sweaty that it was raining. I remember that. Because what was happening is the, the evaporation of all the sweat was forming on the top of the building, and it was cold outside, so it was just creating the condensation. But yeah, that was Propagandi down here in Texas. Oh, I would say it was really the camaraderie that got me into the scene. That's one of the reasons I wanted to make a documentary kind of punk rock I grew up with wasn't the 80s violent punk rock that is documented a lot but I grew up with what I call neo-hippie which is like socially conscious and cares about people and cares about what's going on and I wanted to highlight that that was one of the reasons I wanted to make the documentary well it's interesting that you talk about the 80s violent punk rock but there was an article recently I think the title was something along the lines of how Black Flag 
Bad Brains and Dead Kennedys ensured Nazis wouldn't take over the punk scene. Right. And it's all about the battles, essentially. Right, but and there was physical battles. You know, it's interesting nowadays because you had like Charlottesville and you have the thing about, you know, Antifa is now like in the news. But before that wasn't exactly called Antifa, but it was like the anti, because the, the fascists, the skinheads were showing up to punk rock shows and there was a very violent backlash against the Nazis, which still is violent. I mean, they had to protect punk rock against that. Even propaganda, like, uh, we didn't get to go into it much in the documentary because it's mostly about fat records and not the bands per se. But propaganda, one of the reasons that I wanted to make the movie was there was this article, it's like a 15 page article in Exclaim. A buddy of mine wrote it and it was like 15 pages. And a lot of it was like how like there was riots at a lot of their shows where Nazis would show up and cause havoc because propaganda was so anti-fascist and sung about it and had very vocal songs about that kind of thing. But this is like early 90s. Another reason why I made the movie, to be honest with you, is the the ethics where these guys in the music industry treat each other the way you're supposed to treat each other because reputation's important. And here's a label who's able to operate for 25 years. Obviously, I had to make a few sacrifices as far as staffing size and things like that, but didn't have to screw anybody over, you know, to be successful. And that's uh, kind of a boring story. <laughs> like, in the way that most people want to see drama. And I thought it was so unique. Here's people who were successful and didn't screw people over. I guess that brings up a really interesting question, for me at least, because one of the things I struggle with when I work on a doc for someone is a lot of times people will come to me with a story, but there isn't conflict in it, right? Like, it's just right. an interesting story. So how do you work with the story you have to ensure to engage your audience, especially if there isn't something as, you know, conflicting as, I guess, like a spelling bee where, you you know, you have to win and you're watching the struggles for that? It was definitely challenging because one thing I'm all about is being genuine and we weren't going to, like, manufacture conflict. And it was one thing we went in saying. And we did 126 interviews. Wow. I've learned a lot now from that experience, obviously, and uh, I'm working on new projects where I think I dive in and I look a little more for that narrative, something that people can latch on to. But I think with this, it started as what was going to be a short, and it kind of grew because of the interest in the project and some successful crowdfunding thing, which we were asking for like 7500 bucks to finish up a short that we were working on, and we got that in the first day. And so we went on to raise like $36,000, which, you know, this is my first project i've only been doing it for a very short amount of time and so i was like thirty six thousand dollars oh my god we need to make a feature like oh those cost a lot more than that so anyway kind of going back to what you said like we kind of like had to kind of say okay what are we doing now and you know going through everything we, we i looked for interesting stories that highlight the label and what they were about so any conflict we put in the movie which is basically the band calling out the record label owner and him still putting it out, which I think speaks to his character, which I think is an interesting dynamic. And then there's people who, you know, passed away and things like that, but mostly people were supportive of each other. So my thing was information, information joke. <laughs> I think through humor and I think the puppets really played a big way to keep people engaged because we did a lot of, we did test screenings as we went along and we did uh, some test screenings with the core audience at Records fans. But then we also did a, a couple other ones that were mostly people who aren't so tied to the record label. And we noticed a lot of engagement whenever puppets were on the screens. And I think if you don't understand punk rock, you, people mostly understand puppets. 
and it's a lot of that you know show don't tell the puppets gave us a lot of way of a lot of information that may have been like why do i care about this you know if they're not connected as they're telling the story the puppets were able to kind of like keep people engaged if it was you know more black kind of parts you know just kind of information you need and um if you notice it kind of starts off explaining you know who mike is and like who the bands are and that kind of thing I, I got dinged a little bit, I think, on that repetitive part where we were kind of showing the bands and kind of kept a format that was repetitive in a way. I wanted people to be able to get an idea what these bands sound like, kind of know what their connection with the label was, so that when we got to the second half of the movie, which was really kind of explaining what the label's about, because they're going to talk about their connection with those bands, like, oh, Lagwagon is this or Propaganda is that. So I wanted someone who has no idea to be able to understand the reference point. And we, all, we also wanted to keep it super short. So I come from, um, I have a background in audio, been an audio engineer for about 14 years. So making that shift from audio editing to editing, you have a sense of rhythm and you have a sense of pace. And can I turn it around to you? What did you think of the pacing? My favorite thing about it in terms of the pacing was those video game inserts to tell you when you're introducing the next band actually almost felt like a reset for me. So if something felt like it was going to start to slow down anytime soon, if I saw one of those, it was almost like, okay, new information, I'd sort of reset, which I thought was really interesting. I really absolutely loved the drug scene. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was so funny. Its place in the film works really well because it's been like a lot of information up to that point. Right. And then all of a sudden you sort of break the tension with this funny story. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, one thing I love about making movies definitely is the collaborative process aspect of it. And as we would do cuts, I would send it out to about two or three people. One of the guys was like, that 45 seconds is way too long. It's too long. You got to cut, you got to cut it down. And I, and I contemplated it because that's all hand-drawn animation. It's expensive. <laughs> yeah, it's expensive. But also I loved every frame because there's something moving in every frame. It's not like a lot of animation where it's like, you know, you have like the mouth moving or maybe the character's moving. If you look at that, every single frame, something's happening and changing and morphing. And this also, I should mention, was before we put the sound design, which I think also helps with how long it seems it's lasting because you're getting all these interesting things coming back in. But I knew I wanted something like that. And I felt like that at that point in the movie, a, a, I liked how long it was because it's almost like a breather. You don't know where it's going either because it's so random. <laughs> the animator is this kid from Japan that the girl who did the puppets hooked me up with. And he spoke very limited English. But I knew kind of what I wanted. If I, I knew I was trying to get the animator from Super Jail, but he was too busy. But I had seen this guy's animation it's very similar where it's kind of like very morphing and like lots of stuff happening i'm definitely kind of person as far as on directing side like i try to find people i like what they do and let them just do it you know and just kind of give them some basic guidelines and so i try to explain it to them i was like basically do the craziest thing you can think of whatever you want to do (laughs) but it needs to tie in punk rock and fat records and he put he puts the word fat which i so on the nose but so awesome he's like there you go it's fat but then he's got the like the punk rockers and here's another thing that's really interesting you know you have those moments where things just kind of work together even though they're not planned together and the song we picked is this song which i really like from no effects it's called drugs are good you know it's in the lyrics are like drugs are good they make you do the things you know you not should (laughs) 
but there's like when the song kicks in, when I just first laid it down onto the timeline with the animation when I first got it, like the little characters jump up and they come down. It came down like almost. I mean, I think I had to nudge it maybe one or two little spots, but it came down right when the song kicked in. I was like, oh my gosh, you know how it like the timing. And I hadn't planned that because I wasn't sure at the time in the animation what song I was going to use. So when I put it in there and it just kind of locked in right away, I was like, oh, this is, we're keeping all 45 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to jump back to the puppets for a sec because what I found interesting about them is that, you know, talking heads can be the death of a documentary. You have this unique tool to do these talking heads. So how did that come about and how did that change your storytelling in the editing process? Sure. Well, one of the subjects in the movie is uh, this band called Bad Cop, Bad Cop. And uh, the lead singer, her name is Jenny Cotterell. She's a very, very talented artist, mural artist. You know, she's drawn for Titmouse. She used to draw the backgrounds in Metalocalypse. And she designed two of the murals for the courtroom and Parks and Recreation. So super talented. We were filming with them and we became you know, good friends, as you do in this thing. And we were filming with them live. And after the concert, she was, we were just kind of shooting shit. And uh, she's like, hey, I just wanted to kind of let you know, like, I, I make, like, puppets. I've made puppets before. And something to think about. When she said that, like, my head exploded. Like, you know, have, you have that moment where, like, that's fucking it. That's exactly what I've been looking for, even though I wasn't looking for it. And I like how organically it kind of came. It wasn't like, hey, this is a gimmick we're going to use. Because we were talking about doing a couple of reenactment type ideas that were funny or that kind of thing. Maybe having like some kids as punk rockers, some of the less salacious type things. But when she said puppets, I was like, oh my gosh, that gives us this way that we can tell all these past stories. We can do reenactments. And it really proved to be extremely valuable in storytelling. What we were able to do is if there was not a really good way, archival or b-roll to kind of show something we could or if an idea popped into our head we could like oh we could do that with the puppets i don't know if you noticed we adopted a time a type of like crank anchors-esque drunk history kind of thing where the puppets don't have voices they were the voice of whoever's talking which you know seemed to work really well because then we could kind of as someone was saying something someone else said that's a tough sentence we could go to a puppet and it really proved super valuable at the end there where the one guy is kind of calling out Mike and that the propaganda where they're kind of calling out Mike. Um, we had t- done two interviews with the guys from propaganda and they're Canadian and you guys are generally pretty polite and nice. And so they weren't fully honest about how they felt about some of the stuff that Mike was doing. And I had sent them a cut and apparently one of the guys sent an email back and he said, I don't know if we can agree with this. It doesn't really represent how we feel and blah, blah, blah. And this is two weeks. It's already done a theatrical run. You know, we did like 70 screenings worldwide and a bunch of film festivals. And we were two weeks away from Blu-ray. <laughs> and he gets sends me this email. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, dude, we did two interviews with you. And he sends in the email kind of like what he wanted to say. I was like, okay, dude, I know you did a podcast before. I know you have a microphone. Just send me audio of you just saying what you just wrote in this email just exactly like I, I always want it to be more illuminating and in that scene it felt a little off balance anyway because mike was pretty defensive for what seemed not a lot of them saying something and it's only about ends up being about 10 seconds but 
what we did was he sent me the audio and I was like, what can we do? I was like, well, we have the puppet of him and we have the puppet of Mike. And some of the stuff he was saying was pretty harsh and kind of really pointed. Cause he's saying it into a microphone. He's not saying it to him. You know, he's being truly honest cause he's doing it into at his home into a microphone by himself. So what we did is we took the puppets, me and a buddy, we went for a day, went two different locations. And most of the time the puppets are B roll. But if you notice, that's the time where the puppets are being interviewed. And basically that way we could have the one puppet saying this very pointed type stuff like eh, the vanity project, blah, blah. And Mike can respond, but he was, we have him respond as the puppet. It's kind of like it, the puppets are kind of talking to each other and it kind of takes a little bit of the, you know, it makes it seem a little more fair, seems a little more balanced, but also it lets us use that audio in a way that doesn't seem forced, but it ends up being one of the more complicated puppet scenes in the movie. <laughs> like, and we did that two weeks before Blu-ray which we couldn't do that if we had actors, you know how things work. Yeah. They ended up like in a very practical way being very awesome. But then like when we did all the film festivals, you know, we would be on the red carpets deal and maybe one or two outlets would want to talk to us. But as soon as they saw the puppets, everyone wanted to talk to us. I had a lot of people from festivals say, hey, I didn't know what to expect with this. I'm not into punk rock at all. You know, you're making movies. The best thing is when you try to communicate something, someone can communicate that back to you that they got it, you know, which is like, yeah, awesome. (laughs) Now you shot a ton of footage by the looks of it, because I went through your extras, I went through the film. How much footage did you shoot? And how did you go about weeding it down? Because I'm sure you got tons of stories from fans. How did you go about breaking this down? One thing we did was we had a lot of people that were really excited about the movie, a lot of fans of the record label. So we had a lot of people who wanted to volunteer and so what I put together is a, a team of about 10 transcribers that would go, because we had 126 interviews and it just was not financially feasible to have every single one transcribed. But we ended up transcribing about 75 of them through a, a team of uh, 10 transcribers that would take on and literally just t- type in in time code and type in what these people said. And then we created a, a, a Google Doc. I want to say it ended up being like 500 pages <laughs> that we could do keyword searches on. And so we could clump things together. And another thing that kind of limited some of the stories is like it had to be corroborated. So a story was great, but if we didn't have like at least two to three people talking about it, you know, we would use the corroborated stories first. So that, that helped quite a bit. The way the questions were asked from the beginning, like uh, that article I was talking about, the propaganda article, early on I reached out to that writer, Greg Pratt. He had a set of questions that kind of helped early on. It made it a lot easier and the, the hardest part was like, I mean, some people were in the movie for like, you know, four seconds with uh, 126. I mean, we tried to talk to everybody within that scene that would talk to us, essentially. And I think I did that for more of a, like I said, a naive type thing where I was trying to get a lot of names in the movie to get people, you know, really super interested in it. And what's really interesting is the contrast between the movie I'm working on now, which is so much more personal about personal stories and much smaller but it was also interesting because you're talking about how we had a lot of content left over and so we made you know another two and a half hours worth of stuff which was you know a product of me being overly ambitious and everything that i try to do like hey we're shooting this thing let's just shoot a behind the scenes thing too and then oh let's go and make a action sequence <laughs> randomly all that really served because i was trying to learn so I think we did so much because I was trying to learn and I just wanted to like learn as much as we could. So 
you know, let's try and do this and this and this and this. And let's see about, I mean, I would say I'm a lot more conservative in what, like what I shoot now. But going through the footage was, it took us 18 months to edit. <laughs> in that time, I learned how to edit, you know. So to give you an idea, I worked with a guy who worked on this movie called Filmage. It's about the Descendants, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's gorgeous and it's just amazingly done. And he works at a production house called uh, Charlie Uniform Tango here in Dallas. Uh, done a lot of commercials and done a, a lot of different documentary work and things like that. And uh, he kind of didn't like teach me per se, but like was definitely a mentor in a lot of ways. And I read a lot of books and, you know, I tried to learn as much as I could. And, but at the production house, at the very beginning, we kind of figured out a map of what the movie was going to be like kind of the, the roadmap. And then we kind of split that off into little sections and essentially like interns started putting together assemblies and it kind of went through a process where it went down to like maybe four editors and then eventually just me and the other guy, uh, Justin Wilson is his name. And I would take it for about three or four months and then give it to him. And we would sometimes get together down in Austin and do like weekend long sessions, just kind of cutting little things together. And, and so it kind of went through that process. Also, we had a, a test screening that we had to get ready for and <laughs> we were not ready <laughs> driving from texas to california we stopped at a rest stop and i edited for five hours in a cafe booth <laughs> like and then even from that point where it was like the craziest point i edited so much that i had like a nervous breakdown and then it was another like five months of editing after that <laughs> and here's a great story i almost died editing the movie oh really yeah so during the last like three or four months of editing, you know, that, that last 10% is the hardest. So it's like, you know, you're shaving off a couple seconds here and a documentary, you're like making sure like ands connect or conjunctions connect with the other part of what someone's saying, but the sentence structure really like flows. And so I was just doing intense, like seven to eight hour editing. And I had just had a child halfway making through the movie. And so I was editing at night, you know, nine o'clock to like seven in the morning sometimes and just doing it like night after night after night and I was not using good posture and I was not taking breaks to stretch and like get up and walk around you know and I ended up herniating a disc in my back and uh, pinching my nerve of my editing arm and I had to stop editing it was a good time because I passed it on to Justin it was one of the times we handed over but I started taking extra strength Excedrin <laughs> Because my arm just hurt so bad because of the nerve thing, and I couldn't feel my fingers. And the Excedrin, you know how it can hurt your stomach lining? It did, and eventually I had, like, an obstructed upper intestine. I couldn't even keep down water and, like, almost had to go to the hospital. Jeez, man. I'm glad you, you made it through Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm being – I'm over-exaggerating. I didn't almost die, but it was like I almost had to go to the hospital for dehydration. I mean, I got out of it, but I never thought that just sitting down behind a computer and editing could end up being so physically detrimental. <laughs> well, expanding on your work in this doc, I'm wondering how you would describe your approach to interviewing. Oh, wow. First off, The Turnaround with Jesse Thorne. It's a podcast where he interviewers interviewers about interviewing. So he talked to like Oral Morris and Ira Glass and just like even print journalists. For the, the movie I'm working on right now, that was a huge help to confirm things that I was doing right and kind of make sure not to do things wrong. So I highly recommend that for anyone doing interviews. But I think early on, I, I felt it should be conversational. So I, I tried to you know, do that thing where you kind of share a little story of your own and maintain eye contact. And 
one thing I took away from even that turnaround thing, which all the interviewers said, and I just it echoed what I already thought, which is you have to like really give a shit what that person's talking about. And if you're genuinely interested in what they're saying, one questions will come up from your mind, especially when they go to different places. And when you're really interested, you maintain eye contact. So that means you can't have a ton of notes and can't have a ton of set questions. So during that first one, I was kind of like, this question, this question, but I, I would let people talk and I'd, I'd follow my curiosity. Um, now I do bullet points, things that I know I want to hit. And so the interviews, the, the past project we were working on, I felt like went really well. And I was really a lot more confident in my interviewing skills. But I, I, I'm generally interested in what people are doing. So it feels very natural. And on the last project we were talking, it's about people who do creative work and all the different support systems it takes for that. And so we talked to a lot of parents and a lot of parents that aren't used to being on camera or talked to. <laughs> and one of the biggest compliments I got was from one of the parents is that they were so nervous when they were doing it. And um, they had said that I really put them at ease and they felt very comfortable talking with me. And like after a while, it didn't feel like they were doing a, thing even though we had all these lights and cameras and stuff so being prepared you know not so prepared that you know everything this new movie that i'm working on i did something a little different which is i did pre-interviews that i taped so by the time we went out to the subjects i kind of had a basic idea of what was kind of going on and kind of know where my questions should lead although we still found out a lot of great surprises i'm really stoked to see the difference <laughs> between the first movie where i knew basically nothing and this one where I've hopefully grown. Because <laughs> <laughs> you said, you know, you went into this not knowing anything and you got to meet essentially someone you looked up to, a lot of bands you, you were a fan of. I'm wondering, what did you learn from Fat Mike and Aaron that you now implement in your life? I, I don't know if I learned anything new. It was just a confirmation of what I hoped. Another reason why I made the Fat Doc is because there is a certain ethic that goes beyond just that music. And I think it extends out into the community. It's not just punk rock. I think specifically to Fat Records, there's a certain thing. When you find another Fat Record fan, you kind of share a lot of values, you know? And so, you know that thing that they say, never meet your heroes? That didn't prove true for me. <laughs> meet your heroes. Just make sure you have good heroes. You know, I started doing this documentary without any permission. And a lot of naivety. I didn't ask them if I could do the documentary because I had nothing under my belt to assume that I would be, they would say yes. You know, I had never done anything before. Uh, I had produced three music videos, shot maybe four or five of my own music videos, and I had done a behind-the-scenes documentary for one of those music videos. <laughs> so Mike could have shut me down at any time. He didn't have to do the interview. He didn't have to give me no effect songs for free. He didn't have to do any of those things at all. Because who knows what my agenda was? Who knows, like, if it was going to be good or not, you know? So it really confirmed that, like, no, you can operate a certain way and be successful. I learned that some people are what they say they are. Well, he's very open, I find. Any interviews I've seen with him, he's very no bullshit, basically. Right. Brutally honest, which meant a lot. Actually, it's so funny. While making the movie, he's like, you can do it, bro. I don't care if you do it. You're cool. But it's going to be boring. There's no story there. He's like, just make it short. So, but talking about how honest he was, the guy's like monosyllabic normally in emails, you know, like usually one word emails. And after I sent him like one of the final cuts, 
because the other thing is that they had no control. I, I made that abundantly clear early on. Like, I want your input, but you have no control. So I sent him a cut right before we were going, and I get like a three paragraph email. And basically, like saying, I mean, the most validating email you could ever get from a hero, your hero when you make something about them, which is basically like, I was wrong. You were right. This is great. This is awesome. It was basically my creative vision. People, I, I usually can see, and you were able to see beyond that, that something that I didn't see. And like, it's like, that's pretty awesome, you know, that you were able to see something that I wasn't able to see. This really was very heartfelt, which is really a guy who can be crass and a little bit, um, well, a bit of a dick. <laughs> but at his core, he's a good dude, you know what I mean? And I think he's a guy, I think, likes to see how things play out. And, it, you know, it potentially changed my life. I would say it changed my life. Now I'm a filmmaker. I mean, I'm making another one, and it was a pretty crazy experience. How did you get the clearance for all the songs? Because Fat Mike gave you the no effects ones, but there's so many other bands. We asked him. I gave him well, well, well below market. <laughs> That's what's so interesting about operating in the punk rock world. It's so different than everywhere else. People are not like, you know, I sent those bands money and they're going to make kind of a deal as I've made money on the movie, which I haven't made money, but, you know, a lot of that recoup is making sure the bands are taken care of you know, because I wanted to take care of them. But with 126 songs, it wouldn't be financially feasible if we were doing market. <laughs> Everyone was cool. You know, that's the kind of scene that it is. Like, people are all about helping. I mean, we tried to get some Ramon songs that we had in there early on. We had recorded the cover not knowing how licensing worked. <laughs> and they were like, oh, $2,000. I was like, uh, no, thank you. We'll just not <laughs> use it. <laughs> Which $2,000 is like a steal for other films. <laughs> it was a steal deal and it was a steal don't get me wrong but at that point it was like you know it's diy financing was it was the the crowdfunding which we did too so we ended up bringing about forty thousand dollars you know forty two thousand dollars that way the rest was i started a production company right away I, I could take advantage of the tax benefits of spending all this money and you know get credit for it and then the rest was financed by upfront money that we got from our distribution deal which by the way Hardly ever happens from what I understand with docs, but they give you upfront money. We got upfront, upfront money from both our distributors. Orchard did worldwide the, uh, digital rights, but they carved out Japan for us because we had a separate Japan distributor, King Records in Japan, and they did a full theatrical run and tons of merchandising. And so it was cool of the Orchard to do that. But the Orchard also let me sell direct myself, which I did. I also booked about 70 screenings that I booked myself. So I had that money being generated from the screenings, helping to pay for the distribution cost of the digital. It was kind of like building the plane while it's in the air. Yeah. So like money that was coming in was going to pay to get like DVDs manufactured and all that kind of stuff. And we had a really great sales agent. And once again, these are all people that knew what Fat Records was. You know, I piggybacked uh, quite a bit because I, I don't have a name. That film got submitted to a festival, and that programmer knew what Fat Records was, we were pretty much in. And if the programmer didn't know what it was, <laughs> it was an uphill battle. <laughs> but uh, luckily, so many Fat Records fans have infiltrated so many levels of the music and film industry. Like early on, we were talking to Sony for distribution because two of the guys that were higher up at Sony were huge Fat Records fans. <laughs> 
you know, from the very beginning, we were talking to distributors, which was very lucky for us. And which is an interesting thing to have an opportunity. Like, here's something, the core audience is going to watch it, no matter what it is. So how can I make it for someone who isn't the core audience? And how can I make it better than what the people who are expecting it is going to be? So anyway, I digress. (laughs) Well, I do have two more questions for you. The first one is, one of the things I've noticed specifically in punk is there seems to be this interesting dichotomy within the punk world on the one side you sort of have these street punks or people who are from the rougher side i guess you could say of the tracks but then on the other hand you have extremely well educated people who are into punk so i think of like greg graffin from bad religion has his phd in zoology milo from the descendants has his phd fat mike studied sexuality i think yeah, he has a degree. Even Joe Strummer, you know, his father was a diplomat and him and his brother were really well educated. So I was wondering why you think this happens in the scene? I think it's because of the, like I said, we, kind of earlier I was talking about how that there's that difference between the old kind of nihilist gutter punk kind of thing. And like a lot of the guys you're describing are of that new wave where they saw the value, the social value in the punk rock. And also the music's awesome because I like a lot of different kind of music. I like electronic music. I like you know, a lot of metal stuff. And I think the thing that always brought me back to that kind of scene, I think why a lot of intellectual people are drawn to it is it it values that. The kind of like early 90s, mid 90s version of the punk rock where it was being smart is cool. I've mentioned them several times, but Propaganda, like that band had a huge influence. I don't agree with all their politics. They, They run very, very left. But at the same time, they practice what they preach. I mean, they live their lives the way the thing they talk about. And also they're talking about the Gaza Strip to me in the 90s so that opened my eyes to like a lot of the geopolitics that were going on so a lot of the hypocrisy and then you know some you start reading noam chomsky and like the people's history of the world and <laughs> realizing that the history is nuanced and the world is very nuanced some of the things you mentioned are the reason it's that way you know you got a greg gaffin that is a super smart guy and if you like the band first you like the music but then you start diving in you're like what is he talking about and then you're like, oh, he's talking about this thing. They're singing about intellectual things, so it opens younger people to these intellectual topics. And also the camaraderie, like I said, there's a lot less ego. I, I think a lot of people are drawn to that. And also, I think it's also a slightly libertarian to say it's kind of like, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. <laughs> and and kind of speaks to like why I think Mike let me make the movie, because it's, it's like of a punk rock way of going about making movies. Like you, you don't ask permission, you just go and you do the thing. I had the epiphany when I was 25 that no one knows what they're doing. People have specialized skills, but I should mean like people are just kind of figuring it out. And you realize that, you realize that the rules aren't rules. They're kind of guidelines that you can kind of carve out your own way. And I think especially in what we do, being creative about how your career is is just as important as the creative work that you do. So I, I think the scene, tying back into what your question is, I think the scene fosters that type of thinking. That's great. And then I have my last question that I ask everyone. Usually it's, what's your favorite guilty pleasure film? But I guess because we're talking music here, what's your favorite guilty pleasure band? Oh, that's good. I would say, like, if you're from the punk rock world, I guess my guilty pleasure was, like, I like some dubstep and drum and bass and leaning into some of the electronic music that I like. I mean, I'm not into the scene of electronic music. That's where they lose me. <laughs> But I like some of the production and like a lot of music and things like that. So I guess that would be my guilty pleasure. I don't know. I would say it's so funny about punk rock people who are so hardcore about like anything different to them. All of a sudden they're close-minded. It's like, oh, that drum and bass or that 
dub stuff is a bunch of crap. You know, it's a bunch of noise. Like, oh my God, dude, do you know how many people say that about the music you like? Like, come on, man. You don't have to like it, but please don't be a hypocrite. <laughs> so yeah, man. Well, it's funny because I feel at a younger age, I would have been like that. I would have been like, oh, that's crap if it was something else. But the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, I'm discovering all this other music. That I'm like, this is really amazing. And then you start to realize, like you look at Tim Armstrong and Rancid. I mean, they're looking at tons of different types of music and just using that as an influence into their style, which is amazing. Well, that's what a good, I mean, good music comes from the synthesis of all the different experiences and things that the artist has kind of come up with. Like, I struggle sometimes. Like, am I punk rock? I don't know. (laughs) Because, like, I go my own way, which I think is very punk rock, you know. I don't have any tattoos. And, like, everyone in the in the scene that we are in generally have tattoos. And it wasn't something I was passionate about, so I didn't do it, you know? So wouldn't that make you more punk? Because now you're going against the grain. <laughs> yeah, I'm more punk than you. No, I mean, my takeaway from the punk rock thing is that it's not about a particular music. And when I say punk rock, that's such a loaded term. Like, I don't know what it is. It's that thing. You treat people respectfully, doing things for other people, and... uh and being part of a community is, I think, important. If I can turn the tide on you, <laughs> it's like what I find very interesting about what you do is that you cr- help foster a community. You kind of are getting like-minded individuals together, you know, and you're doing it. And you put, I mean, you can tell. I look through all your stuff, you know. You you put a lot of hard work into the, like the stuff that you do, you. and it was such a really awesome thing to be invited to come on because. I started listening to it because as I'm working on this new project, I've been diving in and wanting to like really be a lot more complex about how I edit this movie, about how I'm going to be weaving in these personal stories and a lot more stronger narrative arc to it and a little bit of a twist, actually. And so I dived into like your podcast like crazy. I will say thank you because I've gained quite a bit from listening to it. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for letting me interview. Thank you for interviewing me. It was awesome. So that was my interview with Sean. I'd like to thank Sean for allowing me to interview him. I'd like to thank Carly McKeating for cutting this episode. I'm Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.